if you think about the core of recruiting, ultimately you're matchmaking between candidate and a company and both sides have to be sold. And if they're not, then the relationship doesn't happen. Even on a recruiter side, when you're writing that skill set down or why this person is great for the job, you're selling to the client side. When you're trying to close that deal, you're selling to the candidate side. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today are facing a global war for talent. At the same time, the talent with the skills companies are fighting over want more flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. Talent now has a choice, and it's pushing companies to change. We'll bring together thought leaders, staffing experts, and independent workers to talk about the changing nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to attract the talent that will alter the course of their business to ensure success as the pace of technological disruption increases. Welcome to the talent economy. I'm your host, Paul Estes, and on this episode of The Talent Economy, we're talking with Ashish Kosal, the CEO and co-founder of Hire Talent. With a passion for diversity and inclusion ingrained in his DNA, Ashish truly understands how important it is for teams to have individuals with varying mindsets, experiences, and worldviews in order for their organizations to move forward. My name is Ashish Kosal. I'm the CEO of Hire Talent. We're a staffing firm that helps find clients diverse candidates. I'm also co-founder of Consciously Unbiased, which is a movement, a nonprofit we created to help promote diversity in the workforce and rethinking diversity itself. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. We've run into each other a number of times in the, the staffing world. I want to start by saying you're not a traditional HR person or a staffing person. Before we even get into Consciously Unbiased or, or any of the, the topics, how did you get your start? Because you actually have a degree in computer science, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I studied computer science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I graduated actually, funny enough, in the, the start of the dot-com boom, so 97, where if you could spell computer, you get a job. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I ended up graduating from college, I ended up with 11 offers out of school. And so the other 10 that I didn't take, I actually referred my friends to, and they all got opportunities through that. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of a taste in recruiting. And then from there, I joined Accenture for two years, exactly two years to the day. And then I left there, and my old boss had recruited me out of Accenture into an internet incubator where we had a fund and we invest in startups. And hopefully the idea was to take, do joint ventures and take them public and invest in them and also take on management roles. And so I either took on CTO roles or head of HR. And I don't think I've ever heard someone say, and you rolled off your tongue, either I was CTO or head of HR. I mean, just one, one of those. <laughs> have you met a lot of people that have overlap with uh, CTO skills or could just put another hat on called head of HR? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think ultimately when you're the head of technology in any organization, you end up taking on the recruiting role as well, right? Especially when the economy is hot, you have to start tapping your network and pulling in people that you know. So I think generally when you join an organization, especially in technology, you end up taking that role whether you like it or not. I guess people just don't consider themselves recruiting, which by the way, is everyone's job if you're at any company. And I think you're always selling your organization as a leader, which is part of the recruiting process, you know? So you're at this incubator doing management roles, helping people get bootstrapped up. Where do you go from there? So in that process, I was learning that when I hired these agencies, they were kind of throwing paper at me. And so some of them were helpful. Some of them were just creating more work. And so at one point, I ended up choosing one of my agencies that I actually really liked as people. And so why don't we sit down and whiteboard what we're really looking for and how do you screen candidates properly? And it's supposed to be me, the account manager and the recruiter, but it ended up being me, the account manager and there are 25 recruiters in their office. And so we whiteboarded what we needed 
how to screen them, not to just look for keyword matches and stuff like that, but actually understand the underlying technology. Even if you weren't an expert in that technology, if you understand the vernacular, then you build street cred and you can actually evaluate employees or potential candidates based on asking the right types of questions and sort of being inquisitive. So just learning from the process, I think, would help you actually get good candidates. And so we did that. And then unfortunately, the dot-com economy collapsed. And so there's no exit in a lot of the startups. And so when that happened, I decided to forgo trying to build a billion-dollar idea off a technology startup and just sort of build something that's a cash flow positive business that I felt we could actually hire good recruiters and scale that business and, and build something that, that wasn't that challenging to do in the beginning until I actually started doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a CTO hat. That's like the technology person in you. Yeah. And so then when we started hiring recruiters to, to work with clients, I realized that the evaluation process wasn't necessarily there. And so I ended up building a an online and offline recruiting test. And so the first part of the test, it was a three-hour written exam. And the reason it was three hours is because I think to be a good recruiter, you have to have persistence and, and motivation. And so to push through a, a monotonous job, you really have to have that that stamina. And so we built the test for three hours. And the first hour was, the first section was around asking you questions about what you thought is good, makes a good partnership with sales and Recruiting and the reason we did that was just sort of to see if you were a good good writer and you understood the fact that you have to collaborate. And then the second part of the test was if you said you're a good tech recruiter, here's 30 different technical criteria. Tell me if it's infrastructure development or marketing or something else that's within that category, right? And so as you're going through and flagging those, I could tell if you actually knew what you're talking about with like .NET versus QA versus infrastructure versus program management and things like that. And the third part was here's seven resumes and six different six different job descriptions. Tell me which resume matches best and why. And that was just to see if you can match resumes against job descriptions and also look at different things like job hopping and things like that. And then the last section was, here's five different job descriptions. Show me where you'd look for this person, what questions you'd ask and build a query string. And so I wanted to make sure that you were asking the same questions around six different types of job descriptions because you're not really vetting if you're asking the same cookie cutter stuff. Well, And what was your drop-off rate? 200 experienced recruiters, maybe six passed it. Wow. And so that led me to building also a recruiting school, like basically hiring kids out of school who studied in a certain major and aligned them by skill set. And then if they could pass the rest of it, we could teach them the rest of it. I've gone through a couple of processes for onboarding into companies. So I worked at Amazon for a little while and their, their process is pretty rigorous. I've done some work with TopTal and, and their onboarding processes is pretty rigorous. And so there is this idea that especially getting people to write in a narrative way and to explain something is somehow is a gate that can tell you a lot more about them. Did you experience that? Absolutely. And if you think about the core of recruiting, it's ultimately your matchmaking between candidate and a company and both sides have to be sold. And if they're not, then the relationship doesn't happen, right? And so even on a recruiter side, when you're writing that skill set down or why this person is a great fit for the job, you're selling to the client side, right? And then the other side, when you're trying to close that deal, you're selling to the candidate side. And so if you can't write and articulate and communicate properly, that relationship is not going to happen. Yeah, I remember out of school getting offered a recruiting job. And, and I think the criteria was, can you drive yourself to the office? Maybe they didn't pick you up, but there definitely wasn't a very rigorous process. One of the things that I know you're very passionate about is diversity. And it's not that you're passionate necessarily about diversity. It's the areas of diversity that you're passionate about. Can you help me understand how you got to 
create consciously unbiased and your passion around diversity of thought? So I think my diversity of thought sort of stems from where I grew up in Connecticut. I was in a town that was primarily white, but then we had some different demographic people, but it was more socioeconomic demographics than sort of religious demographics. It's like quickly realized when I went to college that even if you and I look the same and we grew up in the same Midwest town and we had the same socioeconomic background, even if you're culturally a little bit different, you really had the same thought process, right? If we studied the same way, we studied under the same guys and we had the same sort of cultural upbringing just because our town and our, our community influenced a certain way. So I wanted to make sure that when we built our organization that we had diversity of thought. And so I would say, if you have six people at a round table and they all come from different backgrounds, they all had the same sort of upbringing, you're not going to have diversity of thought. And so you probably don't need the other five in the room. Right? And so when we built our organization, I wanted to make sure that we hired people that had come from different backgrounds, but also brought different perspectives. And so you can do that when you interview people if you, and they can do it in a way that's not sort of apprehensive or antagonistic, but they can still get your point across and make you think differently. And if you can think differently and, and digest that, and I always say when you get a different input, if you take a breath instead of responding right away and you actually digest what's being said, then you, you have an opportunity to actually excel and move your business forward. I always talk about the radical power of curiosity. That was a really good friend of mine once who we went for a walk and goes, when did you stop being curious? It was just like this pivotal moment <laughs> in my life. And from that point forward, every time someone said something, I just absorbed and it's like, what could I learn from this moment? Right. And when you, and when you open yourself up like that, it's, it's pretty amazing. 100%. The way Consciously Unbiased started was I was working on a Sunday at work doing paperwork and I took a break just to sort of think through things. Since Higher Talent was really started on the idea of helping clients find diverse candidates, we were passionate about that. And I started thinking about large organizations and their senior management asked to make diversity a priority, but, and they put pressure on procurement, HR, recruiting, and staffing companies to find that talent. But ultimately, the decision makers are the hiring managers and they weren't necessarily drinking the Kool-Aid. And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about our current political environment where the left and the right are so polarized that we're all talking past each other and compromises and happening because we just don't hear each other. And ultimately, we're all feeling like the victim, right? And that includes the white male. And so I was like, all right, that's what we have in common. We're all victims. So let's start there. And then I started thinking about unconscious bias training. And I was like, the, the way it's being taught right now, you walk into a session and ultimately they make you realize another way that you're maybe not feeling good as a human being. And so that's not going to motivate change, right? Because you're not inspired when you leave. So I always say, you walked in, you knew what you know, you didn't know what you didn't know. Now you realize there's another thing you're not doing well and it doesn't motivate you to keep, if you're going to keep doing what you're doing. And so then the, then the third piece of it was, I was like, okay, biases, right now we're taught to be feel, feel guilty about them, but let's really look at where biases stem from. It's actually the way we grew up, our family values, our community values, our culture, Right. And so biases are partly based on life experiences. And part of it's also about survival, right? Because our brain wants to categorize things very quickly because we're taking in different data points constantly. And reality is let's own it. Let's be proud about it. So if we start with that part and say biases are partly based on life experiences, let's own it. Let's be proud about it. Now we're in control of applying it in the right situations. And so it changes the conversation a little bit, right? Instead of making you feel bad about who you are, it says you're in control of it. Let's take your life experiences and apply them in a positive manner. And not discount them. And so I think that was the first step. So I said, all right, let's change the, the vernacular to consciously unbiased. And I'm going to make an active effort to apply my biases in the right situations and make an active effort not to apply them in the wrong situations. And that's kind of where this started. Which is a completely different way of thinking about bias as it's taught today. Absolutely. Fast forward that a little bit further. And you start with kind of what you said in the beginning. 
ultimately to overcome a bias, it's, it's honestly an internal struggle between curiosity and fear of the unknown. And if you let curiosity win and you expose yourself to things you might think are a certain way or people that are a certain way, it might change your bias because you might realize they're not the way you thought they were. The conversation I'd like to have with you specifically is around mental health. Mental health is something that goes left and right, whether you're male, female, what religion, black, white, doesn't matter. Mental health is a real thing. And you were telling me a story once about how you were dealing with somebody who has anxiety, which is something I know about for sure. Help me understand how you dealt with that. But what was the thought process? Because now you have to make sure that you're not biased to something you may or may not understand. So we have a recruiter that works for us and he's a superstar recruiter. He definitely has trouble dealing with stress. And I think being in an office full of people creates additional anxiety to him, right? And so we went through a year and a half of like trying to figure that out, coming up with different tools to deal with it. And then and then when we started consciously unbiased, I started thinking about generation that we're in right now. And so if you look at social media, everyone posts their perfect life, right? And so and it's not true, but we post all the perfect life out there. And so I was like, we're building generation anxiety. And if we don't start learning how to deal with it, then we're not going to get the most out of the people we work with, right? And so we decided, him and I had a discussion and we decided, you know what, let's try working from home and see if that helps. But if you don't see more productivity out of it, then it's a privilege and you have to bring it back in, right? And so we made this deal and said, all right, let's try this for like the next three months and see where it goes. But if I don't see your numbers hitting the same numbers we had before, then we're going to have to revisit this conversation and you probably have to come back in. You know, and the second thing was it was taking an hour and a half commute each way to come into the office. So how much productivity was he losing going in three hours a day, commuting in, in and out? How was his response to this conversation? So at first he was like hesitant because he does like the social interaction. But then as he thought about it and he could save three more hours a day commuting in and out and he could spend time with his family. He actually got to that point where he said, you know, let's give it a shot and I'll give it my best and we'll see what happens. Fast forward three months later, six months later. He was getting up early, working more hours. He was taking the breaks he needed. He was spending time with his family. And when they went to bed, he'd spend more time working. He was starting to work out. He was getting healthy. So it sort of conquered two things. It gave him work-life balance, but on his own hours. And he was getting things done. And he was getting over his anxiety because it was allowing him to spend time with his family and work out, which actually helps reduce that anxiety footprint that he was feeling. And how are his numbers? I think we have a 40% increase in productivity. But having said that, it's, it's not for everybody, right? You have to find the right talent, like learn to manage the talent to, to what they're best suited in. I wouldn't say remote work is for everybody, but I think it's a privilege that people get. And if they can produce against it, then you enforce it and make it, make it better, you know? So when we talk about remote work, you know, I'm obviously an advocate for remote work and working with freelancers and finding the best talent or the best expert to do something, no matter where they, I, I don't have what we call location bias. Like if that person happens yeah. to be, you know, close to an office, well then they should, you know, maybe we have an office and you come into, if that person happens to be across the country or across the world, you want to get the best person to do that job. When you talk to companies and talk about allowing a, a sense of diversity how do you see companies handling the transition to moving remote? Because it's something you have to be conscious about. It's something you have to say, hey, we're going to try this thing. And, and like you worked with your recruiter, it's a trial and, and, and you work towards it and you put numbers against it. But what are you seeing from companies right now as it relates to remote work? I mean, some of them are embracing it holistically and then others are resisting it a little bit. But I think the one common factor that's actually helping push this whole cause is the fact that when unemployment's 
as low it is as it is right now, you start looking at untapped talent, right? And so I think the one thing that can get them over the hump is one, the, the lack of talent out there. And the second thing is that, that the demand for flexible hours and flexible work locations. And I think the third thing which organizations are trying to find is that there's tools out there that actually help you manage that time and manage the productivity and measure it. And so if somebody's not hitting their numbers, for example, like recruiting, it's really easy. If you don't get your number of submittals and interviews and hires in a certain month, then you know they're not working. It's very calculable. Same thing with technology. And so I think with the project management tools out there, the technology is out there, you can literally see if somebody's actually doing their work or if they're not doing their work. And so I think that's opening up that piece. And the second part is reality is large or small. And I know we work so a word that's a bit challenging <laughs> to some people these days, but, <laughs> but the reality is that even large companies like IBM are using the fact that they want to own office infrastructure and they want to be able to turn on, turn off on demand, just like they want to be able to hire and, and let people go on demand. So I think all those things are kind of converging at the same time where it's a natural evolution of what we're doing today. And because communication tools are out there, you don't have to physically be in a location. You can hire somebody from India who could do the same research as Mackenzie would on site for you, right? And I think you're proof of that because you have a research person who's helping you. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. So when I, when I took this new role as editor-in-chief of staffing in the podcast, the team said, hey, we need some research. And I'm like, I've got a great guy. He's got a PhD, but I didn't say from where gave him the work and they were just blown away. I'm like, oh, where is he from? Like, and, and so I told him, yeah, he's, he's from India and he's, but he's just been with me now for almost two years. So if you ever ask for research, I'll say, oh, I'm on it. <laughs> and then on top of that, there's a financial equalizer, right? Because the reality is that you're lifting up these communities, whether it's in a hub spot in Missouri, which is low income, you're getting more productivity with that resource or somebody in China. Reality is that you're helping that community raise the bar and like you're increasing their expendable income and helping families change. And so the reality is that these remote workers are actually motivated to get things done because you're giving them the lifestyle, you're giving them the ability to earn more, and you're also giving them the ability to have a work-life balance, even if they're working more hours a day because you've cut their commute in half. You know, I'll tell you a story. Like the other day, my wife was going to work and, you know, I was going to my office because I work from home. And she goes, well, I'm going to the office. And she said it in a way that was like, I'm not going to be working since I am, I'm at home. And so there's still that a little bit of a bias. If I can't see you, I can't manage you. And if I can't manage you, then I can't control. And if I can't, you know, that, that whole slippery slope. Do you believe that companies are seeing the quality of talent that's out in the remote world? Or are they still have that bias that says, hey, look, people that I can see and manage are the people I want in here because I can control and, and manage them? No, you, I mean, you still have that hesitation, right? It's, everyone has this need to control things, right? And if you feel like if you see it in front of your face and you know they're controlling the ability is for them to work harder. But the reality is like, I could be sitting at my desktop and watching a video or doing something else because my head's not in it because something happened at home, right? And, and just because I have FaceTime here doesn't mean I'm getting more productivity. So I think the one thing that's happening right now is that the fact that we can measure results through technology tools allows you to sort of get to the point where you're almost measuring people like horsepower, right? And if you can measure that, then you know what their productivity is. And if it goes up and down, you can, measure, you can almost get to a point where you pay them on throughput. And I think that's where we're going at some point. But it's also think about it from a diversity standpoint. If you want diversity of thought, you want diversity in your organization, it goes beyond just like where you're from and what you do and what your cultural background is. It actually comes down to how you're bringing different thought processes to the table, right? And so part of like even what we're doing with Consciously Unbiased, we did a partnership with Caffin. Everyone in procurement right now is thinking about diversity spend and not diversity hiring. And reality is if you want to increase your top line growth, you have to have diversity of thought and you have to have a different way to measure diversity hiring. And that includes rethinking what diversity means on a micro level rather than the macro level, right? So if you're saying, I want 
30% women in an organization, but they're all in your sales team and all your engineers are Indian and all your finance people are of Asian descent. You've just built three countries within inside your company and there's no leverage diversity around that. And that's kind of one of the things that we're doing with, with Tuffin is building this organization that helps pull all the needles at the same time, gets management to rethink diversity, gets the hiring managers to re-experience diversity and, and it helps build a pipeline of talent that we're helping the candidates be in, included in, this, in these organizations. And on top of that, we're measuring the results on a micro level rather than a macro level. I've been on a lot of management teams and, and, you know, while I completely understand the intentions are good, I think the way it's practiced often struggles. What could companies do today? If I put you back in your, your incubator days and, and I put you say, Hey, solve this problem or, or bring you into a company as a consultant. What is the one thing that you would tell them to do? If they had to start today, say, Hey, look, I've, I've understood this, you know, I'm under a lot of pressure and we'll say I'm in procurement or HR and I'm under a lot of pressure to fill these roles with talented people, but lowest unemployment and all that. What do they do? Where do you start? Because it, it's such a big and complex thing to implement as a program, remote work in general. I think you start with training the hiring managers to think differently, right? Because ultimately they're the decision makers. And so I think if you don't change that piece of it, it doesn't matter whether you bring diverse talent, you bring remote talent, you bring autistic talent, right? Because they're very, really good at sort of AI and testing, for example, right? If your managers aren't open to receiving it, then I think all of it's for nothing, you know? And so you have to start with making sure you train your managers to start thinking differently. And that's gone through, you do that through through experiences and you show them experiences and share experiences. And that's kind of how you get them past whatever biases they might have around that. Yeah, let's go one level deeper. So if I, so let's set up a training. We're going to jump on a train tomorrow and go to uh, Acme Corporation. We have to present to the middle management team all of the people that have L, you know, two layers of, of people under them. And so they were senior leaders in the organization. Three chapters. We're going to do three different sessions. What are our three sessions in just kind of a, a title perspective? The best reference is an internal reference, right? And so if you can basically go into an organization and find those success stories that have happened, whether it's remote workers or diverse candidates, right? If you can get that person to be part of the training and they can share their success that they had, that'll help them think differently, right? Because you always resist change because you say, well, that might work somewhere else. It doesn't work here. So you got to start by finding that where it works here and bring that and highlight that to the table. Chances are that's already somewhere in your organization. If you go and you look around the organization and try to find somebody who's working with remote teams, you're going to find someone. 100%. So you just got to find that story and highlight it. That's the first part because everyone's always going to say, yeah, it works there, but it doesn't work here. When you show it works here, then like, huh, maybe it works here. And maybe I was wrong about thinking of it that way. So I think first step is I always say it's about experiential learning. So if you can take a reference point of something that's happened within your organization and highlight that within other managers, then you can actually show a success story and make them think differently around it. Second chapter. Second chapter is measuring it. So you got to have tools to measure the results, right? Because if you can't measure people's productivity on-site or off-site, then you can't show success. And the only way to, to get bought in is to, to actually measure and show comparable metrics around year over year productivity or growth or success. And that I think that if you have those tools set up that can show that, then I think that's how you permeate it through the organization. When you talk about measuring, what are some of the tools that you're thinking about? I mean, it depends on the role, but if you're talking about just pure like hiring, for example, if you show time to fill, that's reduced because you're allowing for other types of resources to be included in that in that search, then I think you can show the speed to market, which is essentially affects your ability to, to deliver product to market, right? Because people think about staffing in the sense of time to fill. How do I get this person in the seat the fastest, right? But if you start also measuring productivity gains, right? So you 
we're able to increase whatever tool you're building or whatever product you're selling to the market. If you're able to increase the time to deliver that, that increases your top line revenue, right? And so as we start building tools around that, that show not just the time to fill, but actually the time to market, I think that's a huge win. And also with all the on-demand platforms, you can bring people in and out. So you can actually bring in, instead of one person, you can bring in multiple people that have a bunch of different perspectives and and, specific expertise. Absolutely. And what's our final chapter? Everything's in threes. I didn't invent the rule. (laughs) I mean, the third part is actually marketing internally what's actually been a success and externally. So I think if you show that it works in an organization and you do the internal marketing around it and show the success stories and, and show that this approach is working. And then you also externally market to show them that there's an opportunity here. And the fact is that like, I always call this self-sabotage, but I might not think I'm qualified for a role. And I'll give you an example. When I was graduating college, I had gotten an interview in San Jose and the company I went to go interview with, I'd never been to San Francisco or San Jose area in the first place. So I show up, they were so nice because they they paid for a flight out there. They gave me a rental car. The night before the interview process, they had like a happy hour where you got to meet the managers and you also got to meet other people you're going to be competing against for those roles, right? So I was the only person with a computer science major with a bachelor's degree. And everyone else who showed up there was either getting their PhD from like Caltech or getting their second PhD <laughs> from an Israeli university. And so I was like, there's no way I'm getting this job. So what did I do? Then after the happy hour stuff, I said, you know, I've never been to San Francisco. So I took the car, drove to San Francisco, came back at four in the morning. And then went to the interview at eight. And it's because I thought I had no shot, not thinking that maybe they have multiple roles for different skill levels. <laughs> so I basically literally self that. Or you weren't competing against any of those people and they were just testing you. Correct. So was, <laughs> I literally self-sabotaged myself out of that role because I didn't think I had a chance against the people I met that night. And I didn't meet everybody. So there could have been other bachelors in computer science, but the people I met happened to be way more qualified in computer science that for the roles that I thought I was competing for, you know, I ended up getting the job, but I, I set everything up, make sure I couldn't get the job. Right. Then I call it self-sabotage, not realizing that you can have that. And so when you're marketing externally, the success that you guys have, either from a remote worker or diverse worker, if the diverse people, the remote worker sees that you guys are open to hiring, that creates a larger talent pool for yourself. What do you see the future for your work in the next 10 years? Like if, if you have a crystal ball and you could look at where consciously unbiased and higher talent will be and kind of where the industry will be, what, what looks different? I think a lot of the skill sets that are here today, and I think everyone's worried about AI replacing jobs, but I think if you, I think the jobs that we have today might be different than what we have tomorrow, right? So if you even think about 2000, right? There was no SEO job out there, SEO marketing job. And so I think Everyone's scared about where it is today. And I think there is going to be more efficiencies with technology solving some of those things. And I think AI will probably take care of some lower hanging fruit. But ultimately, I think the roles that we have today will be different tomorrow. And I think the companies that spend the time to invest in technology and also invest in, in sort of retraining their people are the ones that are going to win the demand for talent. In this world where my job will be different in three weeks or four weeks. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to look far into the future to realize that it's making incremental changes. What does training look like in that scenario? Because the, the one thing that I know is you look at the statistics, everybody's too busy mm-hmm. to even train. And so companies are trying to do these, take a day off or you know watch 10 hours of video. And so what does training look like in a world that's moving this fast? So I can tell you from a template standpoint, here's an idea that I've had recently and that I've been trying to push for camera to do. 
let's say Paul is an admin who knows PowerPoint and Excel really well, right? And gotcha. now you're a known resource. You've done really well six months on the project, right? Your tenure limit's two years out. Your project's not getting extended. If, if I know two months before your project's finishing, if I know that next job that's coming out in the same company requires you to know Visio, uh, me as a staffing provider would, would pay for you to take the Visio class, right? But then as soon as with the commitment that the client's going to put you in that role because you have a good reputation of delivering. And so now you've been trained on that product and you get the real work experience right after that because they're, they're also investing and we're investing in making sure you get retrained. And so retraining only works if you're going to use that skill set right after you learn it. Because if, if I taught you Visio and then you didn't use it for two years and then you finally got a job, but you, you went to the Visio training, you're not going to really know what to do with it because you no longer remember it. Right. So I think this whole practical, I, mean, I call it micro progressions. If you start learning something and using it right away, and it's an investment both from the client side and whatever agency is helping you, that's how you can like retrain the workforce in not in a massive way, but in, in small steps. Right. And you keep moving them forward by doing those things. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I look at all of the, you know, stats like the, in the next 10 years, AI, you know, that list, you know, Bitcoin used to be at the top of it for 15 minutes. <laughs> But you look at that and I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with I should be in AI. But if I was looking at my next role or looking at my next sort of remote job, on-demand job, and I said, hey, look, in eight months or six months, you know, this role will be open. And, and it's kind of a, if you train and learn this and you're known entity to the client, there's value in that micro reskilling, I would call it. Yeah, you move the football like two feet, not 100 yards. So this is my favorite part of the show. I've got five questions for you before we go. It's called Rapid Fire. You've not seen these questions. Uh Uh, The one thing on my old show that everyone wanted to do, you can ask me two questions that I have no idea what they are, only to make it Mm fair-ish. I'm going to ask you to just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Mm -hmm. What's one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? Curiosity. You should you, you should change it because <laughs> I think it's very important for you to have the word curiosity on your profile. <laughs> if you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? I guess maybe like Alexander Graham Bell because she just came up with so many different trademarks and ideas and that move society forward. It's fascinating, you know, and it's, it's part of his hunger for curiosity to just fix things that didn't make sense. Yeah, you have to pick one day. That'd be an interesting thing to pick, like the day that you want to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? My phone. <laughs> and probably a knife. <laughs> I'll give it. That's one of the most interesting answers to the question. Um, what book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? I just watched Inside Bill Gates' Mind. It did two things. So I read a lot of books on Gates growing up in the 80s and stuff. And I read a lot of books on like Steve Jobs. Interesting because both of them came across as like, we're willing to win at any cost, you know? And now if you look at him, he's still has that same motivation, but he's redirected it from conquering the world from a corporate America experience to conquering the world with the real problems that are out there, you know? And so that was pretty inspiring because you got to see his emotional part. You also got to see him not give up on his passion to like just make things better. Right. And so it's interesting. He's taking on like real issues like the energy crisis. And he almost got to the point where nuclear power is going to solve some of the world's issues. I think there's some, one of the things he found out in it is that he got so close, but then I think the trade war we're in right now has kind of stopped that for a little bit, but eventually they'll get there, you know, and 
how to solve world hunger. And it's not me to excuse it to do things well and still monetize on it. You know? And I think that was pretty inspiring to watch. That's awesome. This last one's a layup and then you can do your, your, your two questions. It, uh, it's one I ask is which is better, radical curiosity or attention to detail? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Because <laughs> 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 radical, radical curiosity without some sort of attention to detail just creates more chaos. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I thought that was going to be easy. Now, let me let you go ahead and ask uh, two questions. You made a shift in your life recently, right? And I know that part of it is to promote the, the idea of the remote worker, but the second one is to take on mental wellness and re, re sort of make society almost like rethink that. And you and I have talked about this in the past where I actually, I mean, we both think that the discrimination around, around a disability is just not recoverable from today, right? So like if you had your arm cut off and you said, I have to go because I got hurt and an injury at work, they'd understand and they'd say, come back tomorrow, right? But if you said, I need a mental wellness day off because I'm stressed, well, yeah, and there's actually even a policy. Like if your arm gets cut off, you can have, you know, six days off and this is the doctor you go and see. And <laughs> Totally. But the one of the final frontiers of discrimination is mental wellness and mental health, right? And so if you say, I'm stressed today, then I need some time off. And you tell that to your boss, then you may not recover from that because your boss just says you can't handle things, right? And so right. I'd love to hear about that and how you're going to sort of overcome that bias around around that in the next few years. I'm a, a big advocate for remote or not even remote work flexibility. You know, there's two things that I, I learned in my journey. One is there's an amazing amount of experts out in the across the United States and around the world that I didn't have access to through traditional means. I couldn't go to, you know, procurement or HR when I was in, in big tech and access these amazing people from around the world who wanted to do work, who wanted opportunity, who brought a diversity of thought. And so that on demand mm-hmm. part was really important to me. The second part is, look, I spent 20 years going to a cubicle or an office and and sitting through nonstop meetings back to back all day, stressed with, you know, big business problems to solve. And what I learned about myself in this transition to remote work is how much of an introvert I am, you know, and and a lot Mm -hmm. of people who know me (laughs) laugh when when I say that, but I used to go to meetings and emails all night. And then I moved to the sort of the Slack Zoom world. You know, and it's completely distributed and, you know, you have some, some downtime where you can go and, and focus and nobody's going to interrupt you, but then you're, you're back and you're talking to people and, and moving stuff forward. And so I, for me, it was a game changer just from a, a pure mental health perspective. And I, I looked around at my teams just as I've managed throughout the years, I look back and say, wow, I should have empowered this type of flexibility well before I even noticed it, you know, and, and, and push companies to, to embrace that flexibility. I mean, my remote work policy when I had a, a, a team uh, at Microsoft was, look, everybody's a grown adult. And to your point, if there's a performance issue, then yeah, we, we deal with performance issues and there's enough process around that. But other than that, you should take care of your life. And if you want to come in on a Saturday, come in on a Saturday. I mean, I might, there was no judgment in, or at least I tried to project no judgment in people's need for flexibility. And so mental health is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the space. And, and I think over the next year or so, you'll hear me uh, talk more about that. Awesome. The second one, you're working on a book right now, right? I'm working on a book. It comes out uh, January 14th called Gig Mindset. And it really starts talking about how I, you know, one day realized that there was a world outside of the people that were within my my corporation and, and the partners that we worked with. And that there, there was a world full of people. And now this thing called the internet, it was easy to get in touch with folks and have conversations around the world. And I think we're just, just entering that that space of, Fivers and the Upworks and 
and all of that, the slacks and the Zoom, everybody who went public are we work who trying to go public uh, this year. And so I think this year is a, real, a really important part of that journey. And hopefully the book frames for people that work in big companies, you know, like you were saying, how to think about it, shows, shows where there was some success and how to think about it. So here's, here's my second question based on that, right? So our generation is used to you going to work and going from nine to five or nine to seven, whatever it is, and then coming home and spending time with your family. How do you recommend our generation who's now moving into that remote worker space to handle the family dynamics of you being around all the time? Literally literally just had that conversation about three months ago with my wife because I was around all the time and I I had to learn, you know, the kids would come in and I've set up very strange places in my house where I can go. Like I, you know, I have my office, of course, but then I have other places where I can go and and be out of the way. I've also taken up at coffee houses and and some other places to do work. So I'm moving. So I'm not I'm not sitting home all day. And so you do have to retrain yourself. I mean, remote work is a, a different way of working and you better talk to your significant other uh, before making the decision. I highly recommend that. Because <laughs> yeah, they're not always prepared for what's going to change. No. Right? They, no. And by the way, no matter how much you talk about it, <laughs> they're not going to be prepared for how much <laughs> they So if somebody wants to get in touch with you to learn more about higher talent, consciously unbiased, and all the great work you're doing, what's the best way to reach out? Send me an email at ashishaconsciouslyunbiased.com. There we go. And then we'll put all of this in, in the show notes. Thank you so much for, the, for your time today and uh, good luck. All right. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Talent Economy.